Well, church, if you're going to grab your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John. Specifically, if you are looking at the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17 are what's known as the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure and the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderfully encouraging part of John's Gospel, and we pick it up this this morning in chapter 16. Before we read God's word, let me just one more, just ask you to join with me in prayer as we ask the Lord to to help us. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that your word is truth, and we pray now that you would sanctify us by your truth. We remember what Jesus said in John 15, that he is the vine, that we are the branches, that apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. And so we pray, Father, that you by your Holy Spirit would convince us that you would convict us where necessary, that you would give and strengthen faith that we might hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past Monday, the Baltimore Ravens played the Indianapolis Colts. And if you're curious, I was cheering for the Ravens. But when I turned on the game to check the score, the Colts were crushing the Ravens. It was 25 to 9, and it was already well into the fourth quarter. And so I knew the next morning my youngest son, who's also a Ravens fan, would be disappointed. But there wasn't any hope for the Ravens. And so I turned off the game and I went to bed. Friends, as a Christian... Are there times when you feel hopeless? Can you look back on days, or maybe you feel it today, when the burdens of life seem so overwhelming you feel like you're being crushed? Perhaps as a Christian you want the joy that you've seen other Christians have. You've tried. (laughs) But life's disappointments come at you one after another so quickly that you you can't respond quickly enough and before long you look around and you're you're overwhelmed you're 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 in over your head by life's disappointments and when you find yourself in that situation it can feel like there's no hope for the future now if it's monday night football if it's just a game you can turn the game off go to bed no big deal but what if it's what if it's not a game? What if the despair we are feeling is real life? At the end of John's gospel, Jesus' disciples experienced that sorrow. They experienced that despair. In chapter 13, Jesus said to them that one of the 12 would betray him. He told them ahead of time that he would be killed and he would have to leave them. By the time we get to chapter 15, Jesus warned the disciples that the world would hate them just like the world hated him. They would face persecution. That's a lot for these disciples to take in in one evening. And they were overwhelmed. They were troubled. They were confused. They were losing their grip on hope. 
Jesus is the Christ, like he thought he was, if Jesus really is the king, then why is he talking like this about dying, about leaving them, about persecution and hatred? Why is he talking like this? If he's the king, then why does it feel like they're losing? Why does it feel hopeless? Look with me at John 16. At the middle of verse four, we pick up where we left off last week. The middle of verse four, Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. If you've been reading with us in the Gospel of John uh, and you see verse 5, Jesus mentioned that none of the disciples ask, where are you going? That might sound strange because in chapter 13, verse 36, Peter explicitly asked Jesus, where are you going? And so at a surface reading, it may sound like, oh, there's a typo in John's Gospel. But it's not a typo. Though two questions can be worded the same way, the different contexts that those same worded questions occur in may actually reveal two different questions. As an example, if my son turns and walks away from me when I'm correcting him, I may ask, where are you going? But trust me, I'm not interested in his destination my question is one of protest. Where do you think you're going? I'm talking to you. Same worded question, but different meaning. When Peter, in chapter 13, 36, asked Jesus where he's going, it was a question of protest. Peter was not interested in where Jesus was going. He was not interested in what Jesus was saying that his death and resurrection would accomplish he didn't even have a category for that. He was just upset that Jesus was going to die because that did not fit Peter's expectations for the king, the Christ. In his mind, the Christ was supposed to come not to suffer and die. No, 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 no. The king was supposed to come with military might and with a blaze of glory and wipe out his enemies and establish the kingdom of God immediately. No waiting. So this didn't make sense. As Jesus is about to go to the cross, he has every right for, to expect the disciples to care for him. But they don't understand what's going on. So Jesus, instead of demanding they care for him, turns around and cares for them. Moments, he is moments away from the agonies of the cross. But as he's contemplating the agony of the cross in the upper room, what were the disciples doing? Arguing which of them is the greatest. I imagine if the disciples had Instagram accounts, they'd be posting pictures to prove how, which one of them is actually the greatest. Look how close I was sitting to Jesus in the Last Supper. Look, look at me doing this with Jesus. I was, I'm the greatest. It's hard to hear, but it's also important for us to notice 
in this text, that the disciples missed the help that Jesus was offering them because they were self-absorbed. It's good news that Jesus was leaving them. It's, it's good news that he was going to the cross. It's good news that he was leaving them. He says in verse seven, it is to your advantage. Truly, truly I say to you, it is to your advantage that I go away. But they couldn't process that. They were so worried about the things that they were convinced that they needed to be in place for their joy that they only saw Jesus' departure through the lens of how it affected their plans. And so their hearts, verse six says, were filled with sorrow. Friends, it is possible that your sorrow is a consequence of thinking that you know what's best for you. It's possible that my sorrow in my life is because I think and I'm convinced that I know what's best for me. It's easy for the, the world's definition of requirements for what needs to be in place for our peace and joy. It's easy for the world's idea of the pathway to peace and joy to creep into our lives and we, we, without even realizing it, we begin to think, I have to be successful, I have to be popular, I have to be healthy, I have to have an easy marriage or I will never be happy. And those things that we are hoping for, they can be good things, things that we should work for and that we should want. And losing those things that we hope for can be incredibly painful and incredibly confusing. But painful loss that comes from the hands of a sovereign God who loves us can actually be the pathway to true joy. Earlier this morning, we sang about that in the song, God Moves. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform deep in his dark and hidden minds, his never failing skill. He fashions all his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. So we trust in you. God, we trust in you. We sang that this morning. You sang that this morning. Do you trust him? Friends, in painful loss, if painful loss is God's path for our gain, how can we trust him? Let's not belittle. Let's not just sing that song and actually not look at it square in the face in the light of life's hard realities. If God's path for our gain is painful loss, how can we trust him? Point number one. Taking notes, point number one, rely on the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're gonna see this in chapter 16, verses four through 15. We've already covered the, couple of, the first couple of verses. Let's pick it up again in verse seven. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. 
Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. One of the first ministries or works of the Holy Spirit that we see here is that the Holy Spirit is the one to convict. The word convict there means to convince someone of their guilt and then to call them to repentance, to change their mind, to to do a 180 and go the other direction. I was trusting in this, now I'm trusting in God. The Spirit convicts who? Verse 8. The Spirit convicts the world. And remember, in John's gospel, the world is not neutral. The world is, is the created moral order that is in rebellion against God. The world hates Jesus. In fact, it hates Jesus because he is the light of the world that exposes the world's sin. And the world does not want the light of the world messing with their way of life. We've got a good thing going on, they think. And so they sought to extinguish the light of the world by killing Jesus. And they did kill Jesus. The Spirit of God, however, continues the work that Jesus was doing in convicting the world. The Spirit of God comes at Pentecost and he picks up that ministry and he continues this work of convicting the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. First of all, the, world conv- the Spirit convicts the world of sin. Why? Verse 9, because the world does not believe. The world does not trust Jesus. At the root, the cause of every sin is unbelief. Every time that you lie, cheat, covet, lust, or are selfish, it is because in that moment, You've chosen not to trust God. That is at the root, this distrust of God is at the root of every one of our sins. And the world says to us, listen, don't worry about it. As long as you're true to yourself, as long as you live, you know, your version of truth, as long as you be you, don't worry about it. You should not feel shame for breaking God's law. Just be be true to yourself. And so the world, in its worldliness, makes sin look normal. The world makes righteousness seem strange. And so if we're infected with the world or worldliness, we sin, and then we kind of shrug our shoulders and move on. Like, it's no big deal. I mean, come on. God forgives, right? It's no big deal. Friends, sin is a big deal. Sin is not just a mistake. Sin is rebellion against a holy God. Sin is spitting in the face of a God who created us. A God who has only and always been good and loving to us. Now to be sure... Some shame that we experience in this life, like the, like the feeling unclean when we've been sinned against, there are some versions of shame that are unwarranted. But when we sin, we should feel ashamed. Now, we know in the gospel that Jesus does 
cleanse us from our shame. But he only does that after shame does what it's supposed to in our lives. It reveals our need to be cleansed from sin and shame. Then Jesus cleanses us from that. So friends, if if I'm standing in the middle of a road and I'm completely unaware and oblivious to the fact that there's a bus headed right towards me, it's loving for you to, Zach, wake up! It's loving for you to alert me about the coming danger, to convince me that there's a bus coming to kill me. That's loving of you so that I would jump out of the way. In the same way, the Spirit of God convicts us. The Spirit of God convicts the world, not because of some morbid delight in saying, I told you so. No, no, no. The Spirit convicts out of a heart of love and a desire to rescue. Now, if we ask someone in Upper Marlboro if they see themselves as a good person, you think of yourself as a good person? Most people will say what? I'm a good person. But they answer that question based on how they measure up somebody else. And friends, the standard of righteousness is not how we measure up to other sinners. Jesus is the standard of righteousness, a standard that we woefully fall short of. And because God is just, he will not wink his eye at our sin. He will not sweep our sin under the carpet In order for God to be merciful, in order for God to forgive sin, and at the same time meet the demands of justice, which he will not compromise, in order for God to be forgiving and just, just and the justifier of sins, Jesus himself would take the punishment on the cross that our sins deserve. On the cross, the righteous The righteousness of God is put on display. The cross says to us, this, this is how serious your sin is. This and only this is how sin that is so serious against a holy God, this is how sin is atoned for because the wages of sin is death. And church, at the cross, we also see this is how much God loves us. My non-Christian friend, I, I pray that you see that in the heart of God this morning. That's the good news of Christianity, that Christ died and rose again for our salvation. And today, the Spirit of God convicts the world concerning righteousness. Jesus is, is, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. How do, we, how do we see the standard? The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the standard of righteousness. The Spirit of God convicts us that we see the emptiness of our own righteousness and our eyes are finally opened to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that can be given to us if we trust in Jesus. And so friends, again, if you're not yet a Christian, I implore you that if you hear his voice this morning in the pages of scripture, that you do not harden your hearts. But rather, if you hear his voice, if you feel and sense the conviction of God that you would turn from your sin that you would trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Because the Bible promises that if you do, he will forgive you. He will give and clothe you with the perfect righteousness of Jesus, and he will welcome you with open arms.
The Spirit of God convicts the world of sin. The Spirit of God convicts the world of righteousness. Finally, the Spirit of God convicts the world concerning judgment. And the judgment he's talking about here is not the final judgment where we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Rather, the judgment here is the misguided judgments of this world. The, judge, the, the world makes its own evaluations and its own judgments of what's important, what's valuable, and, and, and the Holy Spirit convicts the world about that wrong judgment. The reality is, is that with busy lives and with sinful hearts, it is easy for us to value the wrong thing. And probably the chief example of this is how the world willfully rejected Jesus Christ. The world willfully devalued Jesus and nailed him to the cross. And it's easy for us as sinners to love the world and to love the things of the world. But as Jesus reminds us here in verse 11, the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, the Holy Spirit, one of the things he does is he turns the lights on so that we see that the world's judgment, the world's evaluation about what's valuable and important, the Holy Spirit turns the lights on and convinces us the world's got it wrong. Don't follow the world. And the Holy Spirit also opens our eyes to see the, the all-surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, that following him and having Jesus is worth every cost that it might come with, because he's our greatest treasure. The only way we're gonna see that is with the, the work of the Holy Spirit and his ministry of convicting. Now, as a Christian, Loving a neighbor, a friend, a family member means that we long for them to trust in Christ because we long for them to be reconciled to God. And that's the appropriate expression of love. If, you, if your version of love does not include you wanting your friends, family members, and coworkers to know Jesus, if your love does not include a proclamation of this good news, it's a love that falls short. And so that love that wants our our friends to know Jesus is appropriate, but we have to be careful here because our concern for those that we love can also tempt us to take over the process, to make them believe, to nag them into believing, or to decide for them you believe, especially if we're parents. And we love our kids. We want our kids to be reconciled to God. The reality is, is that it is hard for us as Christians to have no control over the most important decision that a loved one will make about Jesus. But we have no control over that. The faith that comes as a result of our arm twisting is not saving faith. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit that convicts. Not you. Not me. And not your mother. And that's not to say that we have no role in this process. The Holy Spirit, we're told by Jesus, is the helper. So we have a role in this. And, and we know from chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, that our role in this is to bear witness. We as the people of God are called to open our mouths and to share this good news of the gospel with the world. And as we proclaim this good news, what happens? The Spirit of God takes his word, takes the gospel, 
and convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit takes those who were dead in their sins and makes them alive together with Christ. The Holy Spirit takes those who hate God and changes their hearts and gives them a new heart so now that they love God. Brothers and sisters, is that not your testimony? It's my testimony. I hated God. I didn't care about God. I was estranged from God. And by God's amazing mercy, he made me alive. And every Christian can say, yeah, me too. Friends, our job in bearing witness is the job of a mailman or a male lady. We deliver the mail. We deliver God's message. We're not ashamed of God's message, however hard it might be. And we surely do not change God's message, however hard it might be. Our job is not to critique the message. Our job is to deliver the message and live our own lives according to the word of God. And so we deliver God's word. We seek to live holy lives that line up with the message that we're preaching and proclaiming and sharing. And then we love those that we share with and we pray for those that we're sharing with because we know that God is the one who changes the hearts and minds. And we are invited into the privilege of sharing this good news. Friends, if you try to be the Holy Spirit, I guarantee you, you're going to be overwhelmed, depressed, sorrowful, and anxious. Because it's a big job, and you can't do it. But rather than trying to be the Holy Spirit, and trying to convict and change the hearts of those we love, we should praise God for the ministry of God's Spirit. And I'll just say, as one of your pastors, if, 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 if God is not our helper, if Christ does not build his church, I will quit the ministry. Because I have zero confidence in myself and what I'm doing right now to convince you to change your heart and to change your mind and change the hearts and minds of those that I love that don't yet know Jesus. I have zero confidence that I can change anybody's heart and mind. But praise be to God that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And we just come along and we bear witness and he does the work. The Spirit convicts the world. What's more, the Holy Spirit guides us into truth. That's the next thing we see. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We've got to remember that the disciples, they don't have the Spirit of God yet. The Spirit of God does not come until after the death and resurrection of Christ, and the Spirit of God comes in a unique way at Pentecost. You can read about that in Acts 2. And so the disciples, there's a lot of these things that Jesus is saying that he knows full well they can't, they can't grasp yet. It's too much. And that's what he says in verse 12. You cannot bear them now. Jesus is the masterful teacher. He knows, and he doesn't, he, he doesn't, he doesn't just dump truth on people and say, good luck. He, he teaches knowing and having a regard for where we are at. 
He knows our frame and he teaches us patiently and he lovingly guides us into the truth. And so when Jesus leaves his disciples, the Holy Spirit will come right behind him at Pentecost and will pick up where Jesus left off and communicating to them the truths that they weren't ready to bear yet, but they will be ready to bear when the Holy Spirit comes later. And then he, the Holy Spirit, will come and continue to teach and guide them into all truth. And notice, the Spirit of God does not have his own separate agenda unique from the Father and the Son. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are united. Look at verse 13. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, one of the things we need to remember at this point in salvation history is that the New Testament was not written yet. As Jesus talks to his 12 disciples, their Bible was the Old Testament. So how is it that the New Testament would come into existence? Well, one ministry of the Holy Spirit, or as I said here, the spirit of truth, is the ministry of inspiration. It's a theological term, inspiration. It means that the spirit of truth would guide the apostles into all truth in order to write the New Testament. Here's how 2 Peter 1, 21 says it. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So part of what Jesus is saying here in this section in verses 12 through 15 is that when we're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, whether we're talking about Peter's letters or Paul's letters or John's letters, whatever book we're talking about in the New Testament, the spirit of truth has governed the process of inspiring and collecting and preserving the the words of scripture so that we can be confident that when we hold the Bible in our hands, we're not just holding haphazard words of men. We're holding the divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible, trustworthy words of God. It is the spirit of truth that guarantees that for us today. Now, it's important to also recognize that the inspiration of the scriptures was a unique ministry that the spirit of God had during the time of the apostles, the 12 disciples who saw Jesus. We don't have apostles now like we did with the 12 disciples who saw the resurrected Jesus. And so we should not expect new revelation from the Holy Spirit that carries the same authority as that of Scripture, like our Mormon friends might do. Now today, the spirit of truth has the ministry of illumination. So the spirit of truth would inspire the text of the New Testament, and then for us today, the Holy Spirit is still at work, guiding us in the truth with the ministry of illumination, which means that he turns the lights on as we read the Bible, so that we can actually understand what we're reading. You can read a text, you can read a text, I don't know what it's saying. Or you might grasp the meaning of it, but you don't know it like we should know it. We're not changed by it. But when the Spirit of God teaches, we not only understand it, we're transformed by that. Today, the Spirit of truth guides us into truth by bringing the Scriptures to mind, by teaching us, and teaching us in such a way that we are transformed by the truth that leads to the glory of God. That's part of what he's talking about here in chapter 16. Friends, in dark days, when it seems like God is losing, the church is losing, 
It's hard to trust God. But one of the things that God provides us in dark days is his word. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Psalm 119, 105. Not only is it a light, God's word is trustworthy because it's true. And it's true all the time in every era, in every circumstance. And because it's true and trustworthy, we can depend upon it. We can bank our lives on God's word. But spiritual growth does not just happen accidentally. You don't just fall out of bed one morning and grow. Like, we have to read God's word. We have to study God's word. We have to listen to God's word. We have to put ourselves in the pathway of God's grace, which is his word. And church, we must not forget that we are in a spiritual battle, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. Satan is not interested in your good. Satan does not want you to read the Bible. When you sit down to read your Bible, it's not, you're not on neutral ground. You're in a battlefield. And in that moment, your flesh and this world and Satan wants to distract you and wants to make everything else seem more important in that moment and more attractive than the word of God. Your to-do list, the next thing on Netflix, sleeping in just a little bit longer, rushing to work to get the deadlines done, or just picking up your phone and browsing the updates on social media. Friends, don't forget John 10.10. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So in that moment of temptation, the, the enemy is promising life and joy but he's lying to us. Only God gives life. Only his words are life. And so as we read the Bible, we need to remember that this is war. We're on a battlefield. We must fight to make time for God's word. We must fight to remove every distraction when we read the Bible. We must fight to wake up and come to church. Sometimes we forget what somebody went through to come and put their rear end in the seat this morning. Praise God that you're here. It's hard to get here sometimes. It's a battlefield to get here sometimes. Praise God that by his grace, you're here. We have to fight to ask God to pray, to guide us in the truth. And when we're too weak to read the Bible, we need to lean on our brothers and sisters in this church to read the Bible to us and to remind us the truths of God's word. God's word is true. But with so many claims around the world from other religions and other viewpoints of truth, other claims of truth, how can we as Christians today know with certainty that the Bible is God's word, his unique word, his inerrant word? How can we know that it's true? How can we trust God when it seems like we're losing? Well, number one, rely on the help of the Holy Spirit. Point number two. Point number two, rejoice in Christian hope. Rejoice in Christian hope. And we're going to see this in verses 16 through 33. So look with me at verse 16. Jesus goes on and he says, A little while and you will see me no longer, and and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to him, said to one another, 
what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one, no one will take your joy from you. Again, in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death for his resurrection and his departure. That's what he's talking about in verse 16. When he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. He's talking about going to the cross. I'm gonna die and you won't see me anymore. And he goes on to say, and again in a little while and you will see me. What he means there is, is that on the third day he will rise again and then they will see him. A little while you won't see me, death. A little while you'll see me again, resurrection. Now today, we Christians better understand the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection because of the benefit of hindsight and because of the benefit of having a finished New Testament that explains Jesus' death and resurrection. But remember, the disciples didn't have the completed New Testament. They didn't have the Spirit of God, and they couldn't make sense of a Christ, a king, who would die rise from the dead, and then leave them behind and send the Holy Spirit. That, that didn't fit their expectations. It was too much for them to bear or to understand. And that's exactly why they say in verse 18, we do not know what he's talking about. They can't understand it now. But Jesus assures them that in a few days, they'll understand in a few days, they're going to witness, or in a few hours, they're going to witness the, hour, the, the, the horrors of the cross. And verse 20 reminds us that they will weep and they will lament at the sight of the cross. When Jesus' body is then put into a tomb, they will be weeping and lamenting. And Jesus notes here that the world will rejoice. The world that's in rebellion against Christ, the world that hates Jesus, they will rejoice. Yes, he's dead. We feel vindicated in the fact that we thought he was a fraud and now he's dead. See, he's not who he said he was. And the world will rejoice at his death. But that claim to victory would be mistaken. Because on the third day, the disciples would see the empty tomb. And on the third day, they would meet the resurrected, living, glorified Jesus. And in that moment, they would remember Jesus' words that are, he's speaking right here. And their hearts would no longer be sorrowful. They would rejoice. 
Verse 20, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What a wonderful verse of God's word. Notice here in verse 20, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, your sorrow is gonna last for a little while, I'll bring it to an end, and then I'm gonna replace your sorrow with joy. He doesn't say that. He says, your sorrow will turn into joy. I'm gonna take the thing that causes you sorrow and I'm gonna transform it into the thing that causes you joy. (laughs) And then to illustrate that truth, he takes us into the labor and delivery room of the hospital. Now listen, I can't, I can't tell you this from experience, but I've witnessed firsthand the intense pain a woman goes through during childbirth. I thought Katie was gonna rip my arm off because of the pain that she went through in our first son's delivery. But after Hudson was born, her sorrow was gone. The the very thing that caused her sorrow, childbearing, was the very thing that caused her joy. We got a boy! And sorrow was forgotten and replaced or transformed into joy. Friends, in the same way, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to these disciples, the very thing that would soon create incredible sorrow and pain and confusion, namely the cross, would soon create it would turn into the thing that gave them the greatest joy. A joy, he says, that no one will take from them. Listen, only a sovereign God can transform something that gives you the greatest sorrow and turn it into the greatest joy in your life. Only a sovereign God can do that. I think it's because the disciples expected the Christ to come with military might that they assumed that Jesus' announcement of his death was confusing. They, they heard that and they hear defeat, loss. But in reality, what Jesus is saying to them is that the cross was not his defeat. The cross was his victory over sin and Satan and death. Seeing the resurrected Jesus would, would, would prove and validate for the disciples that Jesus told the truth. He is exactly who he said he is. He is the Christ. He is the King. He is the Son of God. And we know it because of the resurrected Jesus we see with our own eyes. How do we know that the Bible is God's word? Friends, the Christian knows that the Bible is true because of the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, you should ignore the Bible. It's not only false, it's, it's dangerously misleading. But if the resurrection happened, then you can know that it is true. Jesus told the apostles beforehand that he would die. He told them beforehand that he would rise again. But he says in verse 20, I will see you again. You won't see me, you'll see me again. And so these apostles who heard that beforehand then were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Now, 2,000 years later, after the resurrection, it's easy for someone who's a skeptic to say, yeah, I don't believe it. I don't think it's true. Okay, you're free to say that, but what is the basis of such a claim? The ancient manuscripts that we're looking at 
are historically reliable. There's no other ancient document that comes to uh, the same level of historical reliability as the, the, the manuscripts of the New Testament. And if what's recorded in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament, if it was fabricated, if it was made up, then it could have easily been discredited in the first century and, it, and the, the movement of Christianity would have come to a crashing end. And, and listen, there were thousands of people who were highly invested in disproving Christianity. That's why they put guards at Jesus' tomb because they didn't want this thing to be propagated that he rose from the dead. They wanted to snuff out this thing about Jesus. But that's not the record of history. Christianity did not die. In fact, the opposite happened. After the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity exploded. It grew in places like Jerusalem and then around the world. And I would argue that the best explanation of the evidence of history is that the, and, and the, the best explanation of the church's growth in the first century, the best explanation of Jews becoming Christians in the first century in Jerusalem was that the events the New Testament recorded actually happened. The burden of proof is not on us. That's where the evidence leads. The burden of proof is on them who claim that this is not true. The evidence all points to this. I know it's a miracle. I know the resurrection of Jesus is like, sounds crazy, but it's true. And that's why we know today that the Bible is true. Friends, Christian hope is rooted in history. We look back on the resurrection and we know that our hope is sure because it's rooted in the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus. But Christian hope is not only rooted in history, it's also sustained in the present. Look at verse 23. In that day you will, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Why? For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, in verse 23, it begins saying, in that day. That day refers to the day after Jesus' resurrection, the, the day when the when the Spirit of God would come at Pentecost. In that day, you will ask nothing of Jesus. You will, you will rather ask the Father directly in Jesus' name. There's this change that happens. And I think the, the central theme of verses 23 through 27 is prayer. As we read this Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 through 17, this is the fourth time, listen, the fourth time that Jesus talks about prayer. Perhaps Jesus repeats it four times to get our attention to how important it is for us to be a praying people. Brothers and sisters, are there not times that you've come to God in prayer, anxious, troubled, confused, sorrowful? You come to God, you read his word, in light of God's word, you make bold requests of God in prayer. You pour out your heart to God. You came in anxious and troubled and then you leave at peace. You leave with joy. 
Now, nothing changed in your circumstances in that time of prayer. Nothing changed. The circumstances that troubled you before you prayed are still there. But now you leave your time of prayer trusting God. You've got this shield. You've got a refuge in front of you. And you're good. (laughs) Prayer is God's gift to us. It's God's gift to us to unburden our hearts. It's God's gift to us to to pray the words of God, pray the, the scriptures such that the truths that we know about God move from our heads eight inches down into our hearts. Because we can know truths about God in our head and not be at peace. But when we pray, God uses that time to move those, heart, those truths into our heart until we ah, rest, trust. Or verse 24 says that our joy may be full. Prayer is the means of this fullness of joy. And we, we, we Christians pray with confidence. We pray knowing that God hears us because we pray in Jesus' name. He repeats it three times, verse 23, verse 24, verse 26, pray in Jesus' name. And, and this is not the first time we've seen this in John's gospel. Praying in Jesus' name is not a magical formula that turns God into this magical genie who grants us our selfish desires and requests Praying in Jesus' name means that we pray as Jesus would. We pray the priorities that are laid out for us in God's word. We pray like Jesus. We pray honestly. And we pray humbly. Not my will, but your will be done. We trust God in prayer. Praying in Jesus' name also means that we pray because we have access to a holy God, access that has been granted to us through Jesus Christ. Listen, never forget, don't just slap in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer thinking it's just a cliche. Don't just do that. Think about what you're saying when you say that. You should pray in Jesus' name, but remember what you're doing. You and I do not waltz into the presence of Almighty God based on our own merit, based on our good works, based on our own name. We Come confidently and boldly because of Jesus and the access that he has granted us. Jesus, when he died on the cross, we're told in Matthew's gospel, the, the curtain in the temple that divided the, that separated the Holy of Holies, the curtain was torn in two. It was a symbol of the access that God has uh, opened for us through Christ's death and resurrection. And so because of Jesus, we pray to God, uh, not as strangers, not as enemies. We pray to God, not even, not even as friends. We, we pray to God as his beloved sons and daughters. And that's what he says in verse 27. The father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. Church, just, just pause for a moment and, and Knowing the access that we have to a God who owns all things and rules all things, knowing that we have access to a God who loves us as he does, as his own son and daughter, knowing these things, we should be those who run to God in prayer, in private, 
in public with our families and, and when we gather. We should, we should run to God. We should, we should avail ourselves of this because it is God's gift. It is our privilege that God has opened up this access to him through Christ, his son. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Christian hope is rooted in history, in the resurrection. Christian hope is sustained in the present through our prayers in Jesus' name. But Christian hope is also guaranteed for the future. This is what we see in verse 28. Look at verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The disciples' claim to get it is a little um, preemptive. In verse 29, they say, ah, now you're speaking plainly. Verse 30, now we know. They think they get it. And, and to be sure, the disciples do believe in Christ. But the spirit of truth won't come until after Jesus' death and resurrection, which means their confident assessment of themselves is a little conceited. And that's why Jesus asks them, as he does in verse 31, do you now believe because in a few hours, Jesus knows and he tells them that he will be arrested, he will put on trial, and then each of these 11 disciples who claim to get it, they will scatter. They will leave Jesus to his own. And in that moment of scattering it will, and fear, they will show how little they actually understand, how little or how weak their faith is. The point is, is that if Christian hope if Christian hope is dependent upon our performance, our ability, our intelligence, <laughs> we would be hopeless. But look again at verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world we all have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Where does our peace found? According to verse 33. Jesus says, in me. Not in your circumstances being just right. Not in you being this great person, this intelligent person, this godly person. No, peace is found in me. Well, how in the midst of tribulation, overwhelming sorrow, can we take heart? Jesus says, because I have overcome the world. The word for overcome here means to conquer. It means to be victorious, to win. As one writer notes, if, if Jesus had said, have courage, I've overcome the world, and you can too, there would be little good news for us in that. If a golf master, somebody in the PGA Tour, uh, nearly drives on the green from every tee and then turns around and says to you, have courage, I did it, you can do it too. There would be no encouragement in that. 
it would simply be a reminder of what we can't do. It would add to our discouragement. But Jesus did not overcome the world just for his own sake. Jesus overcame the world for our sake too. And when we embrace Jesus in faith, his triumph, his victory, his overcoming the world becomes our victory, our triumph, our overcoming the world. That's how we can take heart in the midst of tribulation. Last Monday, the Baltimore Ravens fell so far behind and it was so late in the fourth quarter that I lost all hope of them winning the game. You could say I despaired of the Baltimore Ravens and I shut the TV off. Turned off the TV and went to bed. But guess what? Woke up the next morning and I learned I was wrong. In the last seconds, the Ravens came back. They took the Colts into overtime and Lamar Jackson threw a game-winning touchdown so that the Ravens would win 31-25. I wish I would have watched the rest of the game. But let's say that you and I sit down this afternoon and we watch the rerun of the Colts and the Ravens game. If in the fourth quarter you watch me, and I'm getting anxious and angry, and I... I get so overwhelmed that they're falling behind that I, I give up hope and I lose all hope and I fall into despair. I say, well, this is turned off. You would look at me and say, Zach, what's wrong with you? You know how this ends. Sit down and enjoy the game. Friends, that's what it's like to be a Christian. That's what it's like to be a Christian. You will face tribulation. The world will hate you. You will know incredible sorrow in this life. But you know how it ends. You may be in a terrible job. You may be in a discouraging marriage. You may be enduring chronic illness. You may feel like a failure this morning. But you know how it ends. And thankfully, Jesus does not reserve his help for people who just have their acts together. Because if that's the case, we're all out of luck. Praise God that his help is offered to screw-ups like these disciples and misfits and weak people like me and like you. Like Paul's thorn in the flesh, God may not remove the source of your sorrow today or anytime soon, but his grace is sufficient. And because he is our sovereign God, he can turn sorrow into joy. A joy that no one and nothing can take away from you. So Christian, don't lose heart. Take heart. Because Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray together.